negativity. You feel it, you see it, it's everywhere. That's why this series, I think, is so important, because we cannot give in to the tide that pulls us toward negativity, uh, because some of you, you, you recognize you're bombarded with it, and it's impacting your life in negative ways. So this series is important because we, of all people, should be the most positive people in the world, because we have the greatest news of all time, that God loves us, he has a plan for our lives, and he has a purpose that he wants us to do while we live here, and part of that is to be positive, to be a positive influence in the world around us. And in fact, one of the things I've discovered to be true, and maybe you have as well, is that the positive life begins not when our circumstances change, but when our viewpoint or our attitude about our situations change. You know, some of you live daily through some very challenging things, physically, relationally, at work, I get it. And you're hoping that maybe if the situation changes, I'll become a more positive person. Can I tell you, that will probably never happen. But positive outlook on your situation, having a positive attitude makes all the difference in the world. There were a a group of frogs that were skipping through the forest one day, or hopping, I guess is what frogs do better. And as they were hopping along in the forest, a couple of frogs, two of them, fell into this very deep pit. And their friend frogs gathered around the pit, looked down at their poor friends, and said, you're toast. There is no way you guys are going to ever make it out of this pit. And these frogs, even against all the negativity and criticism they were hearing from their friends up above on safe ground, they began to jump with all their hearts to get out of that pit. In fact, one frog, he kept jumping, he kept jumping, and he kept jumping, but his friends kept taunting him from the top, telling him how it's pointless, you're never going to get out of this pit, you're no good, you're not that good of a jumper anyway, and he finally gave in to the voice of criticism and negativity, and he stopped jumping. He dropped to the ground and died inside that pit. Well, the other frog kept jumping, and kept jumping, and kept jumping, and kept jumping, and finally, he jumped right on out of that pit much to the surprise of all of his friends. And all of his, well, friends, so to speak, all of his friends said, weren't you listening to us? And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm hard of hearing. I thought you guys were actually cheering me on. (laughs) Don't you wish sometimes we were a little bit more hard of hearing and we thought the negativity around us was actually encouraging words? But the reality is there's a moral to the story. The moral is this, that words do have power. They have power. In fact, they have power to change maybe a negative situation positive. It has a power of life or death. In fact, the Bible says the power of life or death really is in the tongue. There is a strength to our words. And part of living a positive life is recognizing the power that we have in our words because the reality is you and I at some point in life are, have been, or will struggle with self-doubt, with discouragement, with an overwhelming situation where you feel like you're a frog stuck in a pit with no way to get out. And what happens is we listen to the voices around us. And those voices sometimes have disappointed you. Those voices have not encouraged you. In fact, they have deflated you and discouraged you. But as people who say we want to make a positive difference, we need to recognize the value of the things that come from our mouth. 
In fact, today, our, our motto, if you want to stay positive in a culture bent toward negativity, here's your motto. Your motto should be, I am encouraging. To stay positive in a negative world, you need to be a person that says, I am encouraging. That I will use the things that I speak to encourage others. In fact, the definition of encourage, I think it's interesting. The definition is actually in the word encourage. Encourage means to inspire courage within another person. So when you speak an encouraging word, what you're actually doing is you are placing courage into the heart of the person you're speaking encouragement over. A courage that says, I can make it through this day. I can make it through this very difficult situation. And some of you know what this feels like because somebody encouraged you. And with what they said, it changed your outlook. I know that there have been times that an encouraging word has saved a life. Somebody who was on the brink of making a decision to take their own life, somebody had a word that was in time for them and it was a matter of life or death. And that encouraging word spoken at the right time inspired courage in their heart. They can make it. They can make it through this difficult situation. In fact, if you're taking notes today, in fact, there's a couple of ways you can do that. The back of the bulletin, there's fill in the blanks and you can use that. You can also use your smart devices, your phones, your tablets, whatever you brought today. Uh, you can go to the Bible app. Our notes are in there. If you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to menu, more live events and find Neighborhood Church there. But here's the, here's the thought for today. When we encourage someone, we're imparting courage to them. When we encourage someone, we're actually imparting courage to them. It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. How many have watched the, the classic, right? The classic movie, courage, right? That's all the lion needed was courage. And what Dorothy kind of did was gave opportunities to encourage him, and courage became his motto. So we have this ability to impart courage in people by the things that we say. You know, encouragement proves that your words actually have power. Over the years, psychologists have discovered the power that our words have, that really our words that we speak impact brain activity for positive or negative benefits. In fact, if you're in a, if you're in a situation or, or a, a home or maybe a friendship where there are critical, harsh words spoken, that releases in your body stressful hormones that cause you to not be very effective at making good decisions. In fact, people who live in highly negative cultures tend to be people who respond with knee-jerk reactions without thinking through. Why? Because being in a situation where there's negativity and criticism, it causes your ability to use your actual administrative brain functions. It hinders the ability to, do, to think clearly and to think right. In fact, some of you know what that's like. When you're in stressful, negative environments, you know you're having a hard time piecing thoughts together, making sense of things, and you respond in ways that probably you wouldn't in, under, in other situations. Speaking of highly stressful situations, I'm re I recall the story of President Lincoln. You know, he was assassinated, right? You guys got the, the memo on that one? Um, but it was interesting, not only about the whole history of that, but it's interesting what they found in President Lincoln's pockets of the outfit he wore on that fateful day that he was assassinated. Eventually, his granddaughter, I think it was in 1937, released those personal contents 
to um, the museum. And eventually those were put on display for all to see. In fact, you can Google, you know, President Lincoln's pockets. Uh, and it's not just a picture of uh, pockets, all right? It's actually the stuff that was in his pockets. And you ever thought about what's in the pocket of a president? I mean, probably today a smartphone of some sort. Um, but what was in his wallet? What was interesting to me, besides the stuff that was common to be in wallets, like a $5 Confederate bill and so forth, I thought what was interesting is he had newspaper clippings in his wallet. Now, why would he have newspaper clippings in his wallet? Probably because they didn't have smartphones back then. You know, how else are you supposed to stay current without cutting pieces out? No. Here's why. The clippings that were in his pocket spoke about his leadership in very difficult times from people who were, were voices of, of um, you know, kind of listened to voices in the day. And they spoke positive about his leadership during very difficult times. And what people have come to discover is that even the president needed to have good news close at hand. And those documents, those newspaper clippings for him, maybe when he was facing with the, the horrific role of leading a nation during a civil war, occasionally had to pull out a news clipping that said, he's doing a good job. Even the president of the United States needs encouragement. And the reality is if you live or breathe, you need encouragement. There is something within the human body that needs it to thrive. In fact, it's, it's been proven that in life, people who thrive and succeed are people who had more positive influence in their life spoken over them than those who grew up in a negative environment. So, encouraging words. Today, I want to talk about that because here's what's true, and you know this to be true for you. Discouraging words are difficult Sorry, encouraging words are difficult to remember. Discouraging words are difficult to forget. And I think that's interesting. Wouldn't it be the opposite? Wouldn't we tend to want to remember encouraging words spoken to us? We've all heard the saying, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, that's right. Words will never hurt me. The reality is that's not true. They have a power. And many of you have lived under the, the unruly power of words that have spoken harshly over you. And maybe still those voices condemn you from within. You can't even encourage yourself in the Lord because you just feel so discouraged. This reminds me of a truth that we need to speak twice as many, actually I would say erase the discouragement. But the point is we need to speak more encouragement than discouragement because you don't remember encouraging words, but you never forget discouraging words. And some of you still hear the echo of words of discouragement spoken over you by a father, by a mother, by a person of influence in your life. And you know this to be true. The truth is we all need encouragement. It doesn't matter what age you are, how much money you make, what kind of position you hold in society, everybody needs encouragement. In fact, the Bible talks about that. Proverbs talks about the, the value of encouraging words spoken at the right time. Here's just a few quickly for you. Proverbs 25, 11 says, the right word spoke at the right time or the right word at the right time is like a custom-made piece of jewelry. In other words, it's beautiful and it's handcrafted. There are people who need encouragement from you that is specific to what they are going through right now. 
It would be like a fine piece of jewelry that garlands their neck. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Proverbs 16, 24, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Who wrote these? King Solomon, the wisest king of all times, who, by the way, also needed an encouraging word. And he spoke about him through his various proverbs, the value of speaking positively. Because the words spoken into your life today have a tremendous impact on your life tomorrow, and you know that to be true. Because words that were spoken to you yesterday still carry a load on you today. So we're going to talk about the importance of saying, I'm encouraging. If I want to change the culture around me from negative to positive, it starts with the things that I choose to say. And here's the beauty of encouraging words. They don't cost you anything. You don't have to go to Fred Myers and restock on encouraging words. They are just right here, right now. What it costs you is your voice, maybe a little bit of your time and attention. And that's all it costs. It doesn't take a higher EQ or IQ, I should say, a higher IQ to speak words of encouragement. Doesn't mean you have to go to college to speak words of encouragement. In fact, it doesn't even mean that encouragement has to be your gift of the Holy Spirit to speak encouraging words. I've heard people who've said, well, encouragement is not my thing. You know, the Holy Spirit didn't give me the gift of encouragement. So I'm off the hook. Wrong. Wrong. The Bible kind of speaks against that. We're going to look at it a little bit later. That we're all called to be people who speak encouragement, especially to the people who are right around you. Because every day we come into contact with people who are craving encouragement. They're craving it. Some of you in the room, you know what I'm talking about because that's you. You're craving encouragement today. You may not know what that person's going through. I may not know what you're going through, but we all know this. Encouragement may be exactly what is needed to change the direction of that person's life, to help them make it through to the other side of whatever it is they're facing right now. And the Bible provides a wonderful example of a person who shows us how we can be people who encourage others. And here's the point behind looking at his life. Encouragement is not natural. It's not. It's something you have to cultivate. You have to cultivate encouragement, just like this guy in the Bible we're going to look at. His name was Barnabas. And we're going to learn some important things about Barnabas out of the book of Acts. In fact, we're going to look at the very first thing about Barnabas, and that is that encouragement is practical. Encouragement is practical because it's so easy to do. It can also be so easily applied to practical things in life. So let's look at it. Here's, here's the first time we see Barnabas in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. We're introduced to Barnabas, but he's introduced by a different name. I think this is very interesting. Let's look at it. In Acts 4, 36, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it to the apostles' feet. So when we see Barnabas arrive on the scene in Acts chapter 4, we don't know anything about him before this point. We don't know really much about him. His name is Joe. So he's an average Joe who comes into the church life. He probably was a marginal follower of Jesus at some, in some capacity, but he's not listed among the apostles, right? He's just an average Joe who has property and sees a need where he can encourage the church. Now, why would this be important? If we look at the history of what's happening right now in the book of Acts, Jesus had died and rose again. 
And he commissioned his apostles, his disciples, to stay in Jerusalem, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they will be witnesses of him. And so here's what happened. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and does what Jesus said was going to happen. They're all filled with power. And Peter gets up and preaches the gospel to those that were gathered. And there were thousands gathered because of what they heard and saw around the day of Pentecost. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. But he gets up and preaches. And 3,000 people get saved that day. So we move from a band of believers gathered in an upper room of about 120 people plus women and children. So that's like an average service for us. One gathering here is around 160, 170 people, all right? So imagine we become now a church of 3,000 by next Sunday. Could you imagine the load that would place on the church? And because it wasn't just a numerical load, it was a load financially upon the church because a lot of the early Christians at that point in time, when they chose to follow Jesus, they would be excommunicated by their family, especially if they were Jews, They would lose their livelihood, their ability to make money. And so all of a sudden, what we have now is a whole slew of people coming together. There's great need. There's widows that need to be fed. There's orphans that need to be fed. And so all of a sudden, there's a need before the church. So what do they do? They ask people to give what they can. And Barnabas very practically encourages this early church movement and sells this land that he owns and lays it at the apostles' feet. And he is called by the apostles, what? Son of encouragement. His name is changed from Joseph. Now, Joseph's a pretty cool name. I mean, if you name Joseph in the house, you, you really would value that. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty cool name. Why? Because it's named after like a key character of the Old Testament, Joseph, the one who wore the coat of many colors, had the special dreams, became like next in command to Pharaoh, saved all of Egypt and the Jewish people. Pretty important guy. And not to mention Joseph of the New Testament, right? Mary's a girl named Mary. There's a boy named Jesus involved. He's kind of a foster dad for Jesus. That's a pretty cool name, but they go, no, 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 we got a new name for you. We're going to call you Barnabas. Now, if I was Joe, I'd say, I kind of like Joe. Because my friends are going to call me Barney, and I'm not real sure I like that name. But the reality is Barnabas, that name meant something. It means son of encouragement, as we see in the book of Acts. In other words, when they ran into Joseph, they said, you are such an encouraging guy, we're going to change your name. Now, I remember as a kid, given a nickname. I remember you were given a nickname. And it was especially cool when you were given a nickname by your peers. Because it's like, finally, I have been noticed and I've arrived, right? I doubt your nickname was Barnabas. But the whole point was the apostle saw this guy and they said, whoa, you know what? The name Joseph doesn't work for you now. You're gonna be Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Why would he be Barnabas? Because the apostle saw in a practical service what this guy does to encourage. Now, it makes me wonder what the apostles would call me. I think as he looks across the church today, the apostles might be tempted to call some people son or daughter of apathy, son or daughter of way too busy, son or daughter of I don't care, son or daughter of I'm self-absorbed, but he was son of encouragement, which means that it wasn't the fact his dad was highly encouraging. It basically means if encouragement gave birth, it would be Barnabas in human form. He 
was an encourager. Which makes me think, what about me? You know, sometimes we can become victims of being so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. And Christians ought to be the most encouraging people in the world around us. We should be known as people who are sons and daughters of courage, encouragement. In fact, it's very practical. You know what this could look like? This, this, this means that tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to look across that workspace or whatever you do, across the aisle or wherever your job is. Maybe it's across the aisle at school, and you're going to see somebody, and you're going to say, that person needs encouragement. And you're going to speak a word in season that's going to help change somebody's life. You're going to think, you know what? Rather than just buying me a drink through Starbucks, I'm going to buy one for that coworker. I know they're having a rough time right now. I'm going to buy this beverage for them. I know it's their favorite. I'm going to drop it off at the desk and just say, I was thinking of you today. This is for you. You know what that does in a practical way to somebody who's going through a difficult time? It says, that person was thinking of me. And besides, who doesn't want to drink, right? I mean, come on. But the point is, that simple acts of encouragement that cost minimal, but make all the difference in the world. Son or daughter of encouragement. I think that Christianity should be rebranded in such a way that when people see us, they go, wow, those people are full of encouragement. Reminds me of that scene in Finding Nemo. Maybe you guys have probably watched the movie. Nemo is a clownfish, and so his dad's a clownfish. And there's this wonderful scene, I think it's just so hilarious in the movie, where the dad goes and meets the other dad fish as they get ready to go to school, and they're like, oh, look, a clownfish. And they think he's going to be funny because he's a clownfish. And so they say, you know, tell us a joke or say something funny. And he tries to tell them a joke and it's very bad. And they don't think he's funny at all. And the whole point being, you're a clownfish, you should be funny. You're a Christian, you should be encouraging, right? That should be what we identify ourselves as, is when we're on social media, we are some of the most encouraging voices out there. In Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, we are the encouraging voices to our peers around us, to our family, to our friends. Because sometimes at home, just taking time with your kids, with your spouse, to give words of affirmation or words that say I love you or time, which is so precious, can make all the difference in the world in practical encouragement. Also, an encourager is a risk taker, a risk taker. So that's one great example. Barnabas, you know, he gave in very practical ways encouragement, but he was also a risk taker. As the, as the story fast forwards with Barnabas, we, we see him now kind of making a regular appearance in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 9, I think it's a very interesting time when Barnabas reappears. Because what's happened is there's this guy named Saul who is like an enemy of the Christian church. His main objective in life is to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, was stoned, killed for his faith in Jesus, Steve, or Saul was there giving approval over his death. But we know what happened. Saul, armed with papers to go arrest more Christians, has this automatic, wonderful transformation where he sees Jesus, and Jesus commissions him to become an apostle of his. And he goes and he learns about Jesus through others who are helping him discover that this one he had been opposing is actually the King of kings and Lord of lords, actually the Savior, and he gets saved in a very dramatic way. And guess, let's look at it, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says that when Paul, so when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him 
not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Here's what's cool about this. Barnabas stood up for Saul when nobody else believed in him. I mean, what that means is Barnabas put himself out there. He took a real risk to say, I vouch for this guy. I believe God's hand is on his life. And even when James and Peter didn't see it in Saul, wouldn't believe it, Barnabas says, no, I'm putting myself out there. I'm telling you, I'm gonna be vulnerable and put my reputation on the line to say, I know I'm standing up for this guy. I believe God's hand is on his life. And the thing that makes me wonder about that is who is the Saul that I need to be vulnerable for? Who is the Saul that I need to take a risk in? Maybe it's that person who has offended you one too many times. Or maybe it's that person at work that everybody else speaks evil of and you see something different in them. And you wanna call out in them what they really are, what God really has for their life. I mean, who knows? Who knows who your Saul is? But what was cool was Barnabas was willing to put himself out there, to take a risk. Now, the truth is, the story could have changed dramatically at that point. And the book of Acts would have ended pretty abruptly. And there would be no Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and so on in the rest of our gospel accounts. But Barnabas stands up for and defends Paul. Who is it that you need to take a risk for? to encourage them, because an encourager is a risk taker. Now, I know there's stupid risk and there's healthy risk, and you need to find that balance. But there are some people that need to be believed in out there. And you could be the one who makes a significant difference in changing the trajectory of their life. I think for Saul, this was a life-changing moment. that Somebody stood up for him. We can do that by encouraging those that are around us, maybe the ones that often get overlooked. Also, an encourager is committed, is committed. As the story progresses into Acts chapter 11, I think it's, it's interesting that when Stephen was martyred or killed for his faith in Jesus, persecution began to grow under Paul's leadership as he was trying to eradicate Christians. And what happened is all the Christians who had banded together in Jerusalem began to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution. But as they left Jerusalem, they kind of went out and began to talk about Jesus wherever they went. And other Jews were coming to faith in Jesus and the church was expanding and growing and that's wonderful what was happening. And the story picks up here in Acts chapter 11 where we see the message even going out to people who were not Jews, who were pagans, who were Gentiles. And the good news is being embraced. And in Acts chapter 11, we see in verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I think when, when Barnabas was sent to Antioch, 
And he got around those people who were pagans, who had been living so contrary to God, and he sees them embracing Jesus. It says that he began to encourage them with everything that he had. In fact, the term that's used there is having a resolute heart, a determined will to encourage them. And so he did that. He was committed to encouraging them, and he did it with all of his heart. You know, in the same way, we're called to be people of resolute hearts. Recognize that an encourager is committed. When you walked that aisle and you pledged your love, you were all in. You were committed to the one you were committing to. When you decided to, to bring that child into the world, you were committed all in for that child. When you took that friendship, you were committed that friendship. When you took that job at that workplace, you became committed to the responsibilities and the privileges that come with what you have committed to. And the, here's the thing, Barnabas, he was committed and he was all in. And part of that all in commitment is being an encourager within that relationship. You know what it's like to have somebody speak encouragement to you, but you also know in the home what discouraging words can do between you and your spouse, between you and your kids, and how it erodes commitment. But encouragers, they're committed. They're all in. In fact, I love that, that, that story about Cortez when he landed at the New World. He said, we're going to burn the ships. We're not going to go back the way we came. And some of you know that you've been kind of sailing on the ship of negativity. And here you are at a point where there's a new way of living, a new way to be as a believer, which is more of an encouraging way. And you need to say, you know, I'm going to burn the ships. I'm not going to go down that pathway anymore. I'm going to move forward with encouraging words. Also, an encourager is others-centered. Others-centered. Kind of goes with the territory of inspiring others with courage. But I think it's interesting that in the book of Acts chapter 11, as we pick up the story again of what was happening with Barnabas, in Antioch, as he was preaching and ministering to these new Christians, he was kind of like the deal. I mean, he was a good man. He preached the word well, and things were going great for Barnabas and the church there. But what I love about this is he does not become self-centered in what he's doing now. He realizes this isn't just about me. And so we see he begins to think about somebody else. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, here's what's interesting. I mean, I know oftentimes we read scripture and, and don't piece things together, but you gotta think with me here what's happening. So last time we saw Saul, right? He was in Jerusalem and Barnabas was pleading on behalf of Saul that he's a believer, Saul spends a little bit of time in Jerusalem with Peter, but he doesn't stay very long, and he goes back, and guess where he's going back to? Tarsus. Now, in case you don't know, that's Saul's hometown. That's where he grew up as a good Jewish boy. He goes back home, and we don't hear much from Saul until this thriving ministry of Barnabas in Antioch, and he's preaching, and the church is growing, and he goes, wait a second, Saul needs to be here. I need Saul to be here with me. I think he needs to get in on this. Now, some of you are going, well, who's Saul? I thought his name was Paul. Okay, let me just clear the air quickly once and for all for all of us Bible enthusiasts who are very concerned about Saul Paul. Okay, here's the thing. 
Saul wasn't his name before he met Jesus, and then all of a sudden he became Paul. I mean, that's a common theory out there. It was like his new name he was given as a follower of Jesus. No. Saul is his Jewish Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek way you would say his name. And so since sometimes in scriptures, they would either say the person's Hebrew name or their Greek name, like, by the way, Peter, which is his Greek name. Cephas was his other name, or Simeon, okay? So Saul, Paul, Greek, Hebrew, that's the difference. So now rest at peace uh, as you study scripture. Anyway, he's thinking, I gotta get Paul here. Now here's what's profound about this. Maybe you haven't thought about it. If Barnabas hadn't thought about Paul, there would be no missionary journeys of Paul. You'll see in a moment why I believe that to be true. There wouldn't be, like I said, much after the book of Acts in the New Testament. But he goes, you know, life's not about me. I'm not going to become so self-absorbed in my success that I overlook the possibility of others around me who, by the way, might even do more than I. I think it's interesting that once the book of Acts closes here momentarily, we don't hear about Barnabas anymore. It was quite likely Barnabas could have been the guy who traveled around the world preaching the gospel and becoming the writer of many letters, but it wasn't Barnabas because he knew Saul's got to get in on this. God's hand is on Paul to do something for the kingdom. Here's the thing. Who are you overlooking right around you that needs to be encouraged? I know that we're busy about our own lives. I get it. I'm a busy man. I'm a dad, I'm a pastor, I'm a chaplain. I get it. We all can get very busy. But in our busyness, there are people around us that are dying for encouragement. And oftentimes, they live right under the shadow of your life, your spouse, your kids. You know, sometimes we need to exercise relational gift giving. You know what that means? That means seeing who's right around us and paying attention to that. You know, in the holiday season, we as a family love to watch some variation of Home Alone. I think they're at about Home Alone 20 now. Um, but some of you watch the original Home Alone, right? And uh, interesting storyline. If you haven't, I won't spoil it for you, okay? Bottom line, family's really busy around the holiday. They're going to go on a vacation together, and the alarm clock doesn't get set right. They go in a frenzied panic to try to leave the house on time to catch the airline, and they leave a kid behind. He's overlooked, Um, and thus the plot, Home Alone. Great movie. Have fun watching it. But here's what I think is the most devastating part of the not-so-funny aspect of this. There are people that live with you at home that are home alone. They're being overlooked not because of a family vacation. They're just being overlooked because life comes at us at rapid speed. And we think because we shuttle our kids around from place to place to place to place and we are with them, that somehow that also is infusing them, and it doesn't. Time with does not equal investment in, and that's something as parents we have to really understand. As married couples, time with doesn't always equal investment in. So who are we overlooking right around us? It needs to be encouraged because they're out there and they need encouragement and they might live right under your own shadow. 
and they're desperate for encouragement. So make this a day, an hour, that you'll celebrate the family and friends around you for who they are and encourage them. We can also see that an encourager in the few minutes I have left is available, is available. Here's where the story picks up in the book of Acts that I think is so interesting. In Acts chapter 13, remember, so in Acts 11, Barnabas is having great ministry. He goes and he gets Paul in Sar- in, in, where he lives in Tarsus and he brings Saul back to Antioch. Now look what happened because he did that, Acts chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, so we know him, right? He's named already. Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so there he is. He's now in the equation because Barnabas thought about him, went and got him. Now here's where the story gets interesting. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And that sent off was the first missionary journey that Paul took. Here's my point. There would have been no set them apart It would have been Barnabas and somebody else if he hadn't thought about Paul. And Paul was involved in this. And they together were available for what God had. Can I tell you that an encourager is available? That means that when the Spirit prompts you to do something, you do it. You're available. It takes time. Yes, I get it. We're all so self-absorbed and busy. I understand. But encouragers are available to stop and take necessary time to listen for what God is whispering in your heart and then doing it. A kind deed, a word of encouragement, a kind gift, a thoughtful thing that can be done to encourage somebody else. That means you're anticipating stuff each day as you're available to be that encourager. And here's what happens. As you become available to that, then you begin to see the blessings relationally that happen because you took the time and the energy to invest in those around you. There's a blessing relationally, but also you begin to see God use you in ways that you couldn't even imagine as you became available to him to speak encouraging words to those around you. So be available. And last, an encourager is patient, is patient. So that first missionary trip that Barnabas and Paul went on, They weren't alone. They they took some partners with them. And one of them was a cousin of Barnabas named John Mark. So he goes on this journey as well. And during their first missionary journey, John doesn't make it. He leaves them, deserts them for some reason. We don't really know what it is in the book of Acts, but he leaves them. And that leaves a mark in Paul's thinking about John, Mark. So let's pick up the story. Acts 15, 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and see or visit the believers in all the towns where we had preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So this is now leading up to missionary trip number two. So we already saw Paul's first missionary journey. In fact, if you want to be intrigued by that, go to the back of your Bible, look at the maps. There's a map there, undoubtedly, in the back of your Bible that highlights the missions trips of Paul. So now they're getting ready for their second missions trip, right? So Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement, Paul and Barnabas, that they parted company. That means they split. They unfriended each other, so to speak. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. 
And by the way, when Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, we hear no more from Barnabas. It's not a bad thing, it's just, it's an is thing. It's just what happened. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. There are times when loving somebody, when being encouraging means standing with that person in the middle of a major mistake or a shortcoming. You know what it's like to make a mistake. I know what it's like to make a mistake. But I also know what it's like when somebody can stand with me and still believe in me that my mistake is not the one thing I'm going to be remembered by. And I think it's interesting as we look at this account, you might think that was story over for Barnabas and for John Mark to never be heard of again. You know, he made a mistake. Barnabas parted with that mistake and story's over for them. No, it's not. Now, while the book of Acts may not mention Barnabas or John Mark again, I think it's interesting that Paul does. Yeah, this is the same Paul who said, no, I'm not taking that guy. He's a deserter. Years later, he's writing a letter to Timothy. And in this letter to Timothy, he says these words. He says, only Luke is with me. So at this point, Paul is imprisoned. Luke has been visiting him and caring for him. And so he's like, Luke is the only one with me, so get Mark, that's the same Mark, and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Now, how did Mark go from being the deserter that he wanted nothing to do with, in fact, such a sharper disagreement between friends that Barnabas and Paul split ways over John, Mark? Why would he years later say, oh, he's useful for me? This is the same guy. In fact, Peter, the leader of the church, also speaks about John Mark in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, this wasn't literally a son of Peter, but he sees the value in John Mark and adopts him kind of as a spiritual son and invests in him. How did that happen from them going to Cyprus? and practically being written off by Paul to now helpful to Paul, son of Peter? How did that happen? You know how it happened? Barnabas never gave up, never gave up on John Mark. And while we don't know what happened when they traveled together to Cyprus, we don't see it, we don't know about it, but something there happened in the life of that young man who had a Barnabas who believed in him and said, you know what, your mistake is not the end. We're not gonna put a period here at your mistake because I believe God is in the business of redeeming mistakes. And he has a plan for you. We don't know what it looks like, but all I know is years later, Paul would see, I need this guy. He's helpful to me in my ministry. Peter would address him as son. Oh, and by the way, he wrote the gospel of Mark that's in the four accounts of the life of Jesus. There would have been no gospel of Mark, no helpful friend to either Paul or Peter if Barnabas hadn't believed in a kid, a young guy who made a mistake. Friends, love is patient. And there are people that I know that try your patience, that live in the same house as you do, that work at the same workplace you do. But you know what? 
your encouragement means you're patient with them and you're not gonna let their mistakes be their final result. That we're with them, we stand with them. Love is patient. That was the first definition that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13 when it came to love. You know what that word means? Long-suffering. It means I can suffer long with the mistakes of those who I'm with because I know this isn't the end of their story. And aren't you glad somebody came alongside your mistake and said, this isn't the end of your story either. An encourager is patient. So here, I'm gonna bring it to a close. Here's the deal. Encouragement is the gift that's within you right now to give to somebody, to give to somebody. I, I once heard about a, a pastor who shared this idea around encouragement, and he said this, if the people around you depend on your words for nourishment, are they dying of malnutrition or are they thriving? In other words, if your words were literal food, are you starving your family and friends or are they thriving because of the things that you say? Words have that kind of power. And here's the thing. I heard another pastor, I think he's actually now the superintendent of our, of our Assemblies of God, say this, that when I think of something kind and encouraging, I'm, I'm going to say it. How many times have you thought something encouraging to say to somebody and you didn't say it? Right? Like, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say it or I don't want to embarrass them. Or Here's the thing. Your family and friends, they can't read your mind. And you think you're the most encouraging person, but the truth is it's all stayed right here. People need to actually hear your thoughts aloud, expressed in words or action, to actually receive the encouragement. That's why we can tend to think we are far more encouraging than we actually really are. They can't hear your thoughts, but they hear your words. So he said, you know what? When I think it, I'm gonna say it. And you know what it's like to encourage somebody and they blush. They, got, they like get embarrassed. Do you know why? Because all of a sudden their body is flooded with these things that they don't know how to process. And so they, they flush up, they get a little embarrassed. It's called encouragement. It's like what their body needed. You know what that feels like when somebody does that for you. Who needs encouragement from you right now? Hebrews reminds us to encourage one another today. Proverbs 11.25, and I leave you with this. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. In other words, if I wanna have a positive life, if I wanna stay positive, that when I speak encouraging words to people, I too will be encouraged. That when I refresh others with the way that I speak or the actions that I, I too will be refreshed. You wanna stay positive? It doesn't happen when you discourage all the people around you. It happens when you encourage, and you too will be encouraged. So as we kind of just for a moment just close our eyes and think about this message as it relates to you personally, who do you need to encourage today? And oftentimes, I would start with those that are closest to you that live under the shadow of your existence. Who needs to be encouraged today? And what can you do to be that messenger of encouragement. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse, your siblings, a friend at school that everybody 
seems to pick on. You know, just last night I was with a family as chaplain for sheriff's office of an 11-year-old boy who took his own life because of discouragement. Parents never saw it coming. Who needs to be encouraged right around you? Lord, I pray we'd all take this message to heart right now. Because there are people that live right around us that our lives bump into on a daily basis who are dying for encouragement. And as Christians, we should be the ones who are the most encouraging of all. Because Jesus, you encouraged us. You came into our existence, into our world. You lived among the human race, and you spoke life and encouragement in your ministry. We should be the people who so easily encourage others because we're not self-absorbed. We're patient because we can do it in practical ways. So, Lord, I pray this message today, although we need to have encouragement ourselves, and yes, that will return on us as we're encouraging, but we need to put this into action ourselves right now to those around us. So let us not just hear it and walk away. Help us do this today. It may change the direction of a person's life, not just for tomorrow, but maybe for eternity. So help us, Lord, to do right be encouraging to those around us. And God, I pray for those in the room today, maybe who are just discouraged in their own hearts. I pray they would know today that you love them, that you speak over them words of life and encouragement and love if they will simply stop and listen because your word is full of the truth of your positive words spoken over us. In fact, I love the proverb that speaks how you sing over us with songs of deliverance. Thank you, Lord. Encourage our hearts in that today. As we go from this place, may we be messengers of your courage and encouragement to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. 